not just the the skier avalanche forecaster coming to talk with the motorized folks. You're actually out there having your day as a motorized user and integrating. And so we go out there specifically trying to answer these focused questions. This is Wendy Wagner, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management. And our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I'm not sure how it happened, but we're in the middle of March already. And the winter is just flying by for me. Um, I'm at home for a few days. Quick turnaround here. But I'm definitely enjoying a little bit of downtime with my my wonderful wife, Stephanie, and my little dog, Arlo. I hope you've been enjoying this season of podcast episodes. And, of course, we're including some other guest hosts this season. And so you've, of course, heard from Wesley Gregg and Dom Baker and uh, Matthias Walker. Um, And so we're going to be bringing in some other folks for the rest of the season as well. Kelly McNeil is going to be hosting three different episodes uh, coming up this spring, um, focusing a little bit more on the motorized side of things. So some snowmobile and snow bike centric episodes so look forward to that as well as we have a guest host appearance from sean zimmerman wall and sean interviews chris bremer the snow safety director at snowbird resort so we're looking forward to those as as well as i've got quite a few left in the cache here so um, we'll be rolling them out and probably be making a go of it through the early summer here. If you have any feedback for us, please reach out. You can email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com or you can find a contact form through our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Speaking of the website, it sure has been a bit since I've updated that and it's in need of a tune-up. I am looking for some help and um, maybe I'll, I'll turn to the the listener base here first but i'm looking for some consultation on how to how to grow this podcast in a mindful way um, that, that can benefit the community and, and streamline some workflows as as i get more growth here um, of course this is not my full-time gig and i'm busy during the winter season uh, ski guiding and forecasting and so um, oftentimes these little the website or social media posts just get pushed to the bottom of the list so i'm looking for some help uh in terms of outreach and marketing and brand growth if you or somebody you know has some experience with 
that sort of thing and think you could lend a hand to the Avalanche Hour podcast, please reach out. Go ahead and email us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Love to start a conversation with you. And congratulations to Haley Darby. You are this month's winner of the Primo Snow and Avalanche El Profesional Snowsaw. I know you've been out there digging lots of pits lately, so I hope this snowsaw helps you get some good information. We've got another great episode for you. This fall, I sat down with the director of the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center, Wendy Wagner. We talk about Wendy's career path to get where she is today and some of the lessons delivered along the way. Um, I know you're going to enjoy this one. And so without further ado, here we go with Wendy Wagner. Good morning, Wendy. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Caleb. Welcome to the show. I was hoping you could introduce yourself to the listener base and talk a little bit about your background and where you grew up, your first experiences in the backcountry winter environment, and some of the uh, roles that you've held past and present in the snow and avalanche world. It's really exciting to be on your show, first of all. So thank you for that. It's quite an honor. I uh, grew up in Utah skiing and playing in the summer in the winter mountains of the Wasatch. And I found myself somehow doing a lot of cross-country skiing. And there wasn't a whole lot of uh, cross-country ski opportunities at the time, so lots of that was done in the backcountry with my folks on fish scale kind of skis, but it turned out I had I had a few folks that got me into some races, and next thing I knew, I was a Nordic ski racer. I don't actually know if I made a, cho- a decision to do that, but that's how I ended up. Um, and I even went as far through high school and through college and made it to a couple Olympics. So I went to the 2002, which ironically was my hometown, Salt Lake City, Utah, went to those Olympics. And then I went to the 2006 Olympics in Italy. And that sort of ended that phase of my life. But I had a real strong desire to know more about snow and more about mountain weather. And it's kind of funny because... When you sent me um, some of these questions, I thought, gosh, how, di- how did I really want, I really wanted to learn about weather. And my earliest memory is cross- in a cross-country ski race when the winds shifted up valley to down valley and I had a headwind the whole race. This is a long race, like 30 kilometers. And I was not only upset at the wind, but I wanted to know why that happened because it turns out that happens every day at the same time of the day in these valleys. And I learned about terrain force winds and up valley, down valley flows. And when I was be, when I was a Nordic athlete, I actually started learning about weather, started learning about snow science at the same note I was still out in the backcountry. Anytime I could, I would drag my ski backcountry skis to Europe. And in the spring, I would ski as long as the snow would let me in the Wasatch Mountains. That sort of thing brought me. So when I finished my career as a Nordic athlete, um, I was fortunate to get into the graduate program 
at the University of Utah in the atmospheric sciences. And there's a lot of snow lovers there. So that was a good fit. And I was able to study mountain weather and snow science. And coming from being a little bit of a ski bum and a Nordic ski racer, I had a lot of work to do to to pass those classes to be graduate with a master's degree. And so that was that was uh, really fortunate. My advisor, John Horrell, and uh, a good friend, Jim Steenberg, are the two that pretty much made, made that happen. And so I want to give a shout out to those guys because uh, I learned that these academic skills can really help you in the future. Uh, and so that was fortunate. In the meantime, I was also uh, networking, and it just sort of happened organically, but I ran into Drew Hardesty at a ski mountaineering race, the powder keg, and uh, I think at that time it was still at, they're still having it at Alta, but uh, I ran into him and started backcountry skiing with him and Brett Kobernick and a Bruce Trumper and a bunch of the other Utah Avalanche Center folks. And so with my work in the snow science and with getting to know them from being out in the field and backcountry skiing and being a field partner, I was sort of on this trajectory where I was learning a lot about not only the office side of or the science side of snow science, but actual being in the field and triggering avalanches and all those things you don't learn behind the books. And so that brought me sort of a, a mentorship uh, with the Utah Avalanche Center that that um, set me on a trajectory to start teaching avalanche classes. And I think a lot of listeners know that there's a lot of different ways you can get your fingers into the uh, avalanche piece. And I always wanted to be in the avalanche piece, but I also knew that you really need a lot of time in avalanche terrain. And uh, you need time triggering avalanches safely. You need time working with people that know more than you. You need to have those experiences where things go wrong and you realize you don't know any anything. And that's obviously a lifelong lesson, those kind of things. But uh but that but that's sort of my background that got me into um where I am today, I applied for several jobs when I got out of graduate school, I denied several jobs, like I think a lot of people listening probably have experience with. And then a certain job came up in the Chugach Mountains at the National Forest up here, and it was a mid-season thing and kind of a last-minute hiring process on the Avalanche Center up here, but I applied for it, and I got, I'll never, ever, ever forget the day Lisa Portune called me. I was out backcountry skiing in the Wasatch, and you have cell phones reception there, unlike in Alaska. So I answered my phone, and I was offered the position up here, and then things have been completely different in my life ever since then, and that was 10 years ago. So that's all long-winded recap of how I got into this business. Wendy, uh, you mentioned your your master's degree from the University of Utah. Did you study your undergraduate at the U as well? Oh, good question. I skipped that part. I did do undergraduate, or I went to undergraduate school, and that was both Two years at St. Lawrence and two years in New York, upstate New York, if anyone knows where that is, up Canton, New York, and just under the Canadian border. <laughs> ski racing there, too? 
I was ski racing there. So I did that right after high school. Yep. And then I missed the mountains being over there in the East Coast. I really missed the big mountains we have here in the West. And uh, I finished my undergraduate at Western State College in Colorado. And that is, there is a really wonderful cross-country ski program there at the time. And so I integrated into that program. And I finished finished my degree there in mathematics. I was a math major, so how, how dorky is that? <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time, but that's actually a really great undergraduate degree to get because you can get into master's programs, I found out, a lot easier if you have a mathematics degree. Uh, so that was lucky. <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about your role as the director of the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. Um, you moved to Alaska 10 years ago after accepting the job as a forecaster. And so give us a little bit of context about the history of the forecast center there. Yeah. So, well, a couple things. Um, when I was hired, yeah, I was hired as an entry level forecaster at the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center. And, it was, at the time, there was a big changing of the guard. There were three avalanche forecasters that were working there, and it turned out uh, all three pretty much left in the same year. So when I arrived, there, was, there were two other forecasters that had some experience there, but we were, we were kind of trying to take what all those all our predecessors had built and move it forward. And when I got there, the Avalanche Center was 10 years old. And, and this year actually is the 20th anniversary of the, of the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Center. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, it's 20 years and it kind of shows. So I've been here for half of the life of the Avalanche Center, which is kind of an interesting thing to think about uh, because it is a relatively young center when it, you're comparing these avalanche centers um, or comparing it to the lower 48. I was in, I was a regular forecaster and, I'll, and it's um, for about five years. So about five years ago, I was hired as the director and the center has gone through a lot of evolution. When I arrived the actual jobs were forestry technicians. It wasn't even an avalanche specialist position. So during my time with the leadership in the office, we were able to transition all three positions. There weren't even three positions. We actually created a position and transferred two forestry positions into what's now called a meteorological technician and or a physical scientist. And so those are the two sort of forest service positions that avalanche forecasters fall under. And so there's been that evolution and they created a director position around five years ago and that is the position I was hired into. And so there's myself as the director and then two other forecasters that we have all of Johnston Bloom and a new forecaster this year is um, Andrew Shower will be arriving. And then we also have almost a half forecaster and that's Graham Prediger. And he is on the recreation side in the Forest Service, but helps helps the Avalanche Center quite a lot. 
Awesome. That sounds like a great team. And a little shout out, congrats to Andrew um, for landing in such a great place at a great center. He's been on the, on the show before talking about some of his master's research. Um, maybe it would help to back up a little bit and talk about, you know, the bigger context of what your forecast area is and what maybe some of the users that access your forecast are like within the Alaska population. Yeah, absolutely. So the Chugach National Forest encompasses a lot of Prince William Sound and the Kenai Peninsula. And as far as backcountry recreation, which is both non-motorized and motorized, it there's a road, the Seward Highway, that goes from Anchorage to Seward, and it goes over Turnigan Pass. And when it goes over Turnigan Pass, the road goes from sea level up to 1,000 feet, and that's where people can access easiest uh, avalanche terrain and fun slopes to ride and fun slopes to ski and you're above the tree line pretty quickly and things like that. So turning and pass because of its easy access to people that live in Girdwood and people that live on the Kenai Peninsula and especially people that live in Anchorage, that is a hot place for people to go to snow machine and ride and it is on Forest Service lands. And so that is where we focus our main forecast zone. So it is centered around turning and pass. There are a lot of places people can get to on the periphery. And we also extend into the Girdwood Valley because there's also a lot of, that's just human powered in the Girdwood Valley, but it's a, it's a place that, that gets a lot of backcountry use. And the one thing I think... Um, you're asking about is right around Girdwood, just to the west of Girdwood, the mount, the, or you're in the western Chugach Mountains at that point, is attached to state land. And so you go from Forest Service lands to state lands really quickly. And then if you move through the western, most of the western Chugach, which is um, Chugach State Park and state lands. You can also move further north up into the Talkeetna Mountains, and then you have Hatcher Pass, which is also an easily accessible place to get in the backcountry that, that gets a lot of use in the winter. So for someone that lives in Anchorage, they can wake up in the morning and decide, do I want to drive an hour north and go to Hatcher Pass, or do I want to drive an hour south and go to Turnigan Pass, and where did it snow the most? So it's an interesting uh, setup we have here with different land managers, and the same users are going to places with different yeah, different land managers. And that's different than the lower 48. Much of the lower 48 avalanche terrain is on Forest Service lands. So we have um, we have a different situation to try and piece, piece together up here. And because we are Forest Service employees, our focus is on the Turnigan Pass area because that's and the Kenai Peninsula um, because that's Forest Service lands. And then we have the Hatcher Pass Avalanche Center to our north that we have a really strong relationship with and communicate a lot about what's going on um, with snow or with users or with um, any, any number of things. But just to be clear, that's its own entity, the Hatcher Pass Avalanche yes. Information Center. 
Yep, Hatcher Pass is its own entity. They're they're their own nonprofit, and every year they they get more and more support, and they've been able to put out more and more public safety products and avalanche forecasts, and it's really uh, exciting to see them grow. Um, but they do not get any federal funding. You said it was a nonprofit, right? Yep, yep, and they. You'd have to chat with Jed Nally up at Hatcher, but my mm-hmm. understanding is it is all through their non nonprofit and through uh, community support and grants. And the state of Alaska has not put funds toward that. Mm. So, as you stated earlier, you know the the CNFAIC is a fairly young center. What was going on before twenty years ago? I imagine there were still avalanches then. Yeah, so Alaska has an interesting history, but in the late 70s, uh, I'm sure you know the name Doug Fessler and Jill Fredston, they started uh, Avalanche Forecasting and Education Organization, and it has gone through many changes, but they were able to get the state to mandate avalanche forecasting. And they had a large budget, and in the early 80s, they were able to helicopters and investigate these avalanches with 30-foot crowns and all this really neat stuff and put out products to the public all over the state. But that folded, and they lost the funding. Uh, I think it's, it was in the early early to mid-80s when they lost that funding. And so since then, it has that left a big hole, and there was no... Um, no forecasting per se. Um, However, they were able to transition that forecast entity into an education entity that is now the Alaska Avalanche School. So through that, um, they were able to uh, reach out in the newspaper. Uh, one of the big impetuses to the start of our Avalanche Center was in 1999. There was a large, large avalanche at Turnigan Pass that tragically killed six snow machiners. And uh, this is right in the heart of our forecast area now, but then there was no forecast. Well, if you read the uh, Anchorage Daily News for that morning and the day before, Doug and Jill actually warn of avalanches because there was such a large storm cycle and a bad snowpack set up. So even though there was no forecast for that time, there were still they were still getting in the media and saying, we have a bad setup. Be careful if you're headed out to the mountains or don't head out to the mountains at all. So that's an interesting thing that we found in our research that uh, there was a void and there still is a void for many areas for avalanche forecasting in Alaska, but um, they uh, really tried to fill the gaps where they could. And it was that accident that killed six snow machiners, which um, pushed the Forest Service to actually have an avalanche center. And so a couple of their employees shadowed in the lower 48, Ted Stevens, put up an appropriation, $200,000 for five years to get an avalanche center off the ground. That's a huge deal. And so he did that for the Forest Service, and the Forest Service really stepped to the plate and created the CNFAIC, which I know is kind of a long acronym. But, um, yeah, there's lots of big events, and a lot of people worked hard to make 
to make this avalanche center get off the ground and including our friends groups. Um, we all know that avalanche centers have friends groups and that's, that's one big reason we can survive. And, um, that's when our friends group was, uh, formed in 2001. So 20 years ago. Boy, it seems like there, there certainly is a lot of coordination, a lot of moving parts up in Alaska between the forecast centers and organizations that are forecasting for highway and infrastructure and railway, I imagine, um, as well as big guiding operations. What does is, what is the information network look like, and how do, you, how do these entities share that information? Yeah, that's a great question, Caleb. And one of the awesome things about working in Girdwood is that there are, there are an abundance of avalanche professionals. And one of the big reasons is Anchorage to Seward or Anchorage to Whittier is a, a one main corridor for the power line, for the road, for the railroad. There's a ski area in Girdwood. There's a heli organization out of Girdwood. There's um regular ski guide companies. There are snow machine guide companies out of Girdwood. But mainly it comes down to that one corridor with the power line, the railroad, and the highway. And so each one of those it, those organizations has an avalanche program. So we have the Department of Transportation avalanche program, the railroad avalanche program, uh, and then the, the Chugach Power Company. And so we... So each of those has a couple of avalanche professionals tied to them. And then you have the ski area, snow safety, and then you have Chugach Powder Guides, Alaska Guide Collective. And every we've created, this is actually thanks to John Fitzgerald, who was a forecaster with us uh, several years ago. But five or six years ago when he was with us, he had the idea of doing a stability meeting once a week. And we would invite these other avalanche professionals to this meeting. It was in Girdwood at our office. And that meeting has now grown to the point where everybody chimes in Friday morning at 8.30. And it's professional. Um, it's for all any avalanche professional um, in Girdwood. And, and uh, so that would be the power line, the Department of Transportation, the railroad. And we all get together and talk about what's happened, what's happening, and try and help each other answer these questions. And so that has been one of, when you mentioned that about the different organizations, we feel so fortunate that everybody is pretty much forced into this one little town, and we can't physically get together this year or right now because of COVID, but normally we all sit in a conference room at the Forest Service, and there's anywhere between 10 and 20 avalanche professionals once a week hashing out stability and what the storm's going to do. And we have folks like Dave Hamry that'll come by and has his 40 years of expertise to young people just getting into it. So um, that's one of, I would say, one of the most uh, successful and things that our Avalanche Center is proud of. Yeah, that seems great. I certainly wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall for one of those meetings. I'm sure it's it's great to share that information and, and hash out different theories about what's going on in the snowpack and weather patterns. Um, speaking of weather patterns and different uh, snowpack 
intricacies of Alaska, the Chugach is a huge area and huge range, I should say, and varies from a maritime snow climate all the way into almost a continental snowpack. Is that would is that fair to say? Oh yeah, that's very fair to say, and that's uh, we've actually done some studies on the snow climate and how it it does go from maritime to continental pretty much every year within a matter of 10 miles or even less from the water. And so does Valdez. The Valdez Avalanche Center has to deal with the exact same thing because they're Valdez on the coast and interior. So um, we both have that challenge. And it, it it's a huge challenge because it's really hard to put a danger rating on something when five miles away you have facets or basal facets or even depth whore at times in this small in this small um, spatial area and then you go close to the water and you have pretty much a homogeneous snowpack interestingly enough the last few years we've had facets and not a maritime snowpack so it's been a l not that it's ever easy to avalanche forecast but that change has been less it's pretty much kind of been spooky everywhere mm. the last few years so it would be really great if we could just have kind of a really snowy snowy winter and we don't have a month-long arctic outbreak <laughs> which we can have up here where it doesn't snow for a month and it just blows the wind blows so what are some strategies that you and your team utilize uh, for the messaging uh, about that broad range of conditions in the forecast area? Well, we've, we've tried different strategies. We actually had a, a snowpack summary for one of our areas called Summit Lake that is almost always continental snowpack. And we ended up, it didn't get a lot of views. When, you know, yeah, you go back to your website stats and you see what people are looking at. People generally just look at our advisory page or the weather, weather stations. Uh, so we decided to put everything in the advisory page. So we will speak about the different areas within our one advisory. And we feel from, I mean, this is still a morphing situation and we hope I mean ideally if we talk about the vision you know could get more staff and we can have a bigger forecast zone but for what we have now with our resources we keep that on one page and we really hope that people read the first couple paragraphs and understand if you get to this area we're seeing that we have this weak layer and it's a different avalanche problem but it is, it's, it's a really hard problem to solve messaging that. And social media helps a lot, too. You, you put in a picture and say, hey, this exists here. And, and um, we hope that people kind of grasp that message. Sure. So, Wendy, I have a question here from social media. Joe Delaporta asks you, what does your process and or system look like when formulating the daily forecast? That's kind of the position description. <laughs> right. Imagine there's just like a, a spinny thing on the wall and you can spin the wheel, right? Yeah, and, and, yeah that with the magic eight ball underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have, we have a lengthy process just like any avalanche center, but uh, we try to get in the field at least once a day, one staff member, and we really try and go to those places that are often not as fun to go, but 
where we think the problem, where we can find that problem. We, one of the things that comes out of our staff meetings is a focused question. And so we go out there specifically trying to answer these focused questions for how can we suss out the avalanche problem and the likelihood, how likely you are to trigger an avalanche is, I mean, that's a never-ending question, million-dollar question. But, uh, but to get back to the nuts and bolts, obviously the weather, the weather stations, and we have a great relationship with the weather service. They put out a forecast strictly for Turnigan Pass, and we can call them, and we often will when weather is changing. We can actually chat with their lead forecaster and ask specific questions about winds or precip or often challenges the rain snow line, because that's a big deal, as you can imagine. And so not only are we gathering our own data in the field before we forecast, and then we're also talking to all the other avalanche professionals the day before, but the morning of, we may be talking with the weather service, we are looking at the weather stations, and then that gives us a couple hours between five and seven uh, after we gather all that data and talk with the weather service to actually put down the the forecast and... um, it, it can be challenging when the weather is changing, and I hope that answered answered Joe's question, but there are a lot of people, our staff, as well as other folks that have been out in the mountains that we're communicating with. Our public observers send us photos that is priceless to get what they see, or even photos from them is absolutely critical to getting more eyes out on the ground but after assimilating all that data you do at the end of the day you have to put a color down and you have to put what your main problem is and sometimes our main problems aren't going to be the problem you're always going to see but it's the one that is going to hurt somebody and that's a slab avalanche versus maybe a bunch of little sloughs out there but it's that lurking slab that's the most dangerous and um, putting all that together can be challenging Hmm. How, yeah. have you, how have you seen the increase in public observations change since you've been at the Chugash National Forest Avalanche Information Center? We've seen a huge rise in our public observations, and that has been that has been really wonderful to see because it shows the community buy-in. It shows that people are paying attention and and um, engaged and want to know more and want to be a part of it and want to be a part of this. Let's all go out and have a good time, but let's share our information. And so I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they've gone up. Uh, I think one year they went up about 50%. We, we had a change in our website and made it easier for people to post photos and to post observations. And I think that's been helpful, but we've really pushed that and we still push it. And uh, one community we really want to see more from, and we are seeing from them, but we want to see more, is the motorized community. 50% of our users, roughly, are snow machiners. And so we've really really pushed to get more engagement with with, um, that community, and that has been growing and growing. But the more photos we can get... Lots of it comes down to just photos and what, what people see out there. Right. I think sometimes people, the public, is a little bit intimidated by making the observations because they might not know the correct term and they think that people are going to 
you know, critique their observation because it's not to swag standards or something like that. Do you have anything to say about those <laughs> concerns that people might have? Yeah, and I think other avalanche forecasters would, would relate, but we that's been a challenge is trying to really let people know that a sentence of where you are in a photo it doesn't have to have any of that snow science jargon and it, you can put anonymous if you want so it, your name doesn't have to be up if you don't want that but anytime we have a chance to chat with our community we always try and even if it's um I mean I ride a lot these days so I'm on the snow machine the most but when I see folks out there I try and let them know that exact thing. Like, hey, when you submit your observation, it just has to be something simple. You don't need to get, they see our observations with all the details. It doesn't need to be that way. Right. So I think it's just, a, it's just um, the evolution is changing. And we still see the uptick in public observations. Oh, that's excellent. You spoke a bit about the uh, reach out to the mechanized community or the motorized community. Um, what are some strategies and techniques that you all are using to try and reach out and, and bring those users into the fold? Yeah, we've done, we started doing uh, some on snow workshops many years ago now and uh, motorized specific. So, we got our, we have our local dealerships on board and they come out themselves they bring their big trailer and so being able to integrate with the dealerships and the businesses the motorized businesses um, has been a huge part of how we've reached out to the general snow machiner out there because when they show up with their big rig and they have their new Skidoo 850 out there that drives more folks. And in order for them to take a test ride, they have to go do a beacon test or any sort of little kind of fun things like that to get the Avalanche Center some exposure. So that's how it started. And it has grown since then to the point where we now have a couple folks on our friends board that are really high profile figures in the snow machine community. We have a um, great partnership with our local dealership and they drive a lot of their their users or their um, their community toward us and they've kind of uh, bridged that gap so to speak and uh, Graham Prediger who I mentioned before has been a big a big push to that too and I think another thing that has helped Caleb is Graham and I are both riders we both ride snow machines uh, anyway, for fun, we have them, we are out doing that on our day off. And so I think that helps where it's not just the, the skier avalanche forecaster coming to talk with the motorized folks. You're actually out there having your day as a motorized user and integrating. I think half of our staff also be snow machiners has helped also. Well, I think it's so important in this day and age to have this inclusive community, you know, and make those inroads with other user groups that are out there. Certainly people that are affected by avalanches on a daily basis. I really like hearing you talk about utilizing influencers within that community. 
And I think that's something that we need to do more of within our communities at large is utilize social media in ways that can bring about positive influences in the backcountry. And I think using some of those key figures within the motorized crowd to do so, people like Duncan Lee, I know down here in, in the Sierra, are doing a really good job of that, at getting the message out. And these professional athletes that are at the highest level of their sport are some of the best people to do so. Lots of what we're trying to do is get folks just like those backcountry ethics and they're, and they're so simple, and, and if we can all abide by them, that could save a, lot of, save a lot of fatalities and a lot of accidents. Well, and a lot of it is, is behind-the-scenes stuff that you don't see from a photo or a 10-second video in social media. And these high-level athletes and professionals and high-level recreationists are doing all the work. They're doing the hard stuff, but you might not see it on social media, and I think we need to change that. <laughs> Right, right, absolutely. So, Wendy, I was wondering what some of your hopes for the future of the Chugach National Forest Avalanche Information Center are, and and what are some challenges that you could see on the horizon? Yeah, well, I have a lot of hopes for the Avalanche Center, and I think we talked about the Avalanche Center has gone a lot, come a long way in the last twenty years. But uh, some of my hopes are that we are able to add more staff. The Kenai Peninsula sees at least one, if not more, fatalities a year outside of our forecast zone. One thing we are proud of is, since I've been here um, in the last 10 years, we haven't had a fatality right in the middle of our forecast zone. And we all know that is ebb and flow, and we don't know why that always happens, but that has happened, and we're proud that we haven't had a fatality there, but in our periphery, and that is still Forest Service land, it does need attention. And so in order to do that, we need more people. We need more avalanche forecasters. And that comes with more funding. That comes with uh, um, the friends group being able to find more grants. They do so much for us. They are just over 50% of our budget. It comes from the community. So it really is a partnership between the Forest Service and the community. And when you speak about challenges, one of a fear, I would say, is when there's threats of a government shutdown or, uh, you know, that really impacts us when that when that happens. And I really like to see we've seen continual decrease in funding in general, the Forest Service, and it would be really nice to, for that tide to turn. We're seeing more and more people in the backcountry, and I know that this year with COVID, it's it's um, was an unforeseenable thing a year ago. But we are expecting, as you've already mentioned before, but. The backcountry used to just explode this winter, and we want to be prepared for that, and we want to give people resources so they can get out and have a mentally healthy day and be safe about it. So it, a lot of it comes down to finding those funds for the Avalanche Center. And so not only do we want to expand in our forest, but there's also getting the state of Alaska on board. And if we can, my overarching vision and goal as a director is 
public safety and public safety for all our users. And that's not just the snow machiners and the skiers and the snowboarders, snowshoers. That is for everybody in Anchorage, everybody in Alaska, so they can cross over these different land manager boundaries and have information. And so type of interagency between the state, Forest Service, the Weather Service, I think there are a lot of people that would like to see that come back to fruition. Something Doug and Jill started, what is that, uh, 30, 40 years ago now, is sort of the overall goal. Because that, at the end of the day, that is our mission, is to keep our users safe and our users are crossing um, boundaries up here. And so that... I guess there's a lot of hopes I have, and, and a lot of it comes down to um, funding and how we can how we can tackle that. And are those conversations ongoing? Those conversations are ongoing, absolutely. Yeah, and they they take time, as as anybody knows. When you're in these big organizations with a lot of history, it takes time to move move different ideas and taking something from an idea and a plan to actually getting funding behind it is that's a humongous step but there are a lot of people in the works that would like to make this happen for Alaska well that's great to hear and and I'm sure it's not without its challenges you know especially coming from one of the more rugged individualistic states in the United States, right? People, <laughs> there, I'm sure there's lots of identity within these entities, right? And so it's difficult for anybody to give up a little bit of their identity uh, within their organization for a, a much greater goal. Yeah, and I and and I think that that can be overcome if things are done right. Yeah, and and everybody is you know, brought to the table and things like that. And, and that makes me want to just quick say, uh, the Alaska avalanche school, because we have, there's no way we can forecast for the whole state of Alaska. It's way too big. That's like, you know, um, unrealistic, but the role that education scene up here mm. plays is huge. And that is something that has really filled a lot of gaps of being your own forecaster, uh, from, from the bear, minimum of no information because people do really get to a lot of remote places and they don't necessarily need an avalanche forecast. So we're talking about the high use places right off the road, mm -hmm. but that the school really, really fills a lot of the gaps of getting a lot of education out to the community. Great. Wendy, why are there not more female avalanche forecasters in the United States? That's a that's a great question, and uh, and um, I've thought about that. And from my perspective, you know, Alaska it's it's um, that's not how my experience is so much up here. The, uh, we have a lot of females that are in avalanche forecasting roles and are in uh, professional avalanche roles, um, but thinking about the lower 48 more too. And we even had a staff of all female for a little while at the Chugach. And, um, which is, uh, 
pretty interesting that that's how the cookie crumbled when you look at the lower 48. But um, but that's a, that's a good question. And I don't have a have a great answer for you because I do know there are many women qualified for these positions. There are many men qualified for these positions. And I, I know through all the hiring I've done in the last six or seven years, um, our hiring committee, it's always, we did end up with those with three females at one time, but we, at the end of the day, we hire the best person for the job. And I think, you know, um, I know there are lots of great women and lots of great men that have applied for positions that I've been on a hiring committee for that don't get the position because there are only so many of these positions in the country to start with. And that's always a hard thing when you when you get a list of candidates and they're all exceptional, but you only, you only have one position to fill. And um I, I would say from my experience, uh, working hard, having patience, knowing you're not going to get the first, second, third, fourth job that you're going to apply to is really, is really important. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how, how to answer, answer that other than I would like to just say to all the women out there and all the men out there that if you, if you really want a job like this, that perseverance and patience and really having a great network of people surrounding you and supporting you is uh can be a real benefit sure it seems like another benefit is is being able to be flexible with where you're going to go right to gain some of that experience oh yeah absolutely you have yes i had to be flexible and i think um you you definitely have to be flexible if if you wanted, yeah, break into the break into the field, which hopefully hopefully that you know we'll keep getting more jobs as as the future rolls on. Just as a country, more avalanche center jobs. I think lots of people would like to see that. All right, Wendy, do you care to share a story of a, a close call or a lesson delivered or watershed moment within your career? <laughs> Uh, let's see. I have, I have a few stories and a few watershed. Uh, it's interesting. I feel like my, my watershed moments all have to do with all the people that supported me, that support me currently and supported me, uh, getting to where I am now. And, uh, a close call or a lesson delivered, I would say, um, when I was just getting into this, maybe in the early 90s, it was right when Bruce Tremper came out with that graph of three years after you really start knowing what you're knowing, you have an accident or something happens and all of a sudden you don't know anything for a while. And I think that graph has been been out for a while, but I'll never forget looking at that a long, long time ago. And I feel like I've had multiple um close calls that keep reminding me what it's like to not be an avalanche professional. And, and I recreate in the mountains a lot for personal reasons, because I love it. And that's what I think a lot of, uh, of us do. And sometimes it's hard to separate the professional side of you and the, um, just going out and I want to have fun in the snow side. But just a few years ago, 
I was out with my partner and it was just he and myself. And, uh, we had a great day on this steep slope and we snow machined it and we skied it. And an hour and a half later, another group came up that we were the first ones there. And, hour and a half later, a group showed up and the first one on the slope triggered the entire thing, deep slab avalanche. And he was buried with his hands sticking out and was okay. Um, it would have, the debris was up to 30 feet deep in places and his snow machine wasn't, uh, retrieved till the next fall. And I will never, I mean, I have a lot of moments I, we all do that we'll never forget, but that was, I can't, I still grapple with exactly how I could be on that slope like that with only one person. And I try and use that to remember what it's like. Uh, I was out there as a backcountry user. And, and um, I was also with my professional you know, had on too in the sense of the avalanche, but it still happened. And that uncertainty that we live in, I don't want to forget about that. And I don't ever want that to happen again to me or anybody else. And anybody that has had these things and been sort of slapped in the face and how did I, how did that happen? Um, I don't want to lose, I guess, that that feeling of we really don't know everything and we really need to do everything we can to mitigate if something does go wrong. Cause I am still going in the mountains, just like most people listening are. And I would gather most people listening have had multiple experiences like that. But, um, I wrote the avalanche forecast that morning and, and I think maybe it was a moderate hazard day. I'd have to go back and look. But I did have the caveat of it's unlikely this is going to happen. And wow, that happened to me that day. Or it didn't happen to me. It happened to the next person on the slope. And we had put tracks all over it. And I'm sure it looked nice and safe when that group arrived. But um, that's I, I don't really know how to pull out a lot of that for you, Caleb, other than um, that is still something I think of on a daily basis of how the mountains really, really are in charge at the end of the day. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Wendy. And it's a good reminder of how we can maybe fall into some fatigue from decision-making and fatigue of uncertainty in the professional realm and I can understand how when you're looking for reprieve from work, you're looking to recreate with those that you love in the mountains. And it's it's so easy to kind of put that other hat on, right? Yeah. Yep. And then it also really brings, I didn't say this, but it brings home this, uh, when you're an avalanche forecaster, I do believe that you take on responsibility in your personal life too to that professionalism and this really is a professional field and I really want to make sure that I'm a steward of that and that goes to what I post on social media or how I act on my personal days and so I've thought a lot about that and our responsibility as forecasters because we 
we can't remove our names once, you know, that's just kind of the culture of it. And there is, you know, how that incident plays into that, um, could, can be discussed for, for anybody, but, um, but that does, that did bring to light a lot of what are these extra responsibilities that we're taking into our personal lives? Because we, we really do believe in, in the mission of public safety as an avalanche forecaster. Well, Wendy, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It was it was great to get to know you a little bit better and, and hear about um, some of the things that you all are doing up in the Chugach to create effective advisories and get those advisories out to the public. So um, as you stated, the number one goal is public safety on on Forest Service lands for you all. And, and, um, and it's really exciting to hear about some of the conversations that are being had to see what uh, forecast centers can do to serve those people better. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. It's been uh, great to be on your show. All right. Well, we look forward to getting out with, with you and riding with you at some point in the flesh. Yes, please make it to Alaska. All right. Cheers. Have a great day. Thank you. Likewise. And I hope you enjoyed that one. Thanks again, Wendy. I hope everybody's enjoying the Avalanche Hour podcast this season. Um, Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. If you're really enjoying the show, go ahead and head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review us. I'd like to thank 2B Outerwear for their support this season. Thanks for setting me up with some great gear. Uh, from the mono suit to the Terminator helmet to the jacket and bibs and boots. Man, you guys styled it out for us in the Wallowas this year, and we sure do appreciate it. If you like riding deep powder and staying dry, no matter whether you're riding a snow machine or with boards on your feet, go on over to tobeouterwear.com. That's T-O-B-E outerwear.com and check out some of the latest and greatest offerings from Tubi. Theme music for the Avalanche Hour podcast was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks for your contribution, Chris. Appreciate you. And, of course, our artwork was created by Mike T. For any of your illustration needs, head on over to Mike T's website, www.miket.com. You know how it's spelled by now. And check him out. Give us a follow on the socials. Be sure not to miss any new episode releases. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast, reluctantly on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to tune into this week's third Thursday episode, hosted by Wesley Gregg, where he interviews James Minifee, a backcountry ski guide out of Soul Mountain Lodge. I'm looking forward to that one, Wes. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.